All right, well, good morning. We are now in a new series through the book of Jonah. I invite you to turn there. If you have a Bible, if you don't have one, you can grab one. There's usually one nearby under a seat. You can grab one of those and use that. We are on page 774 in that Bible. Then you can turn there. Um, I want to just plug something real quick. Tonight, our evening service, we will read through the entire book of Jonah together. Uh, we, it'll give you a good overview, and it'll help, Lord willing, us understand the parts as we go through it. And I want to invite you back to be a part of that. We're calling it Bring the Book. So bring your Bible. It'll be a time of just letting the Word of God speak, and we will listen as we read through the book of Jonah. It's actually not a long book. We can get through it rather quickly, 48 total verses. I wonder how much you know about Jonah. I wonder how much you think about the meaning of the book of Jonah. I wonder how many of you, when you hear about Jonah, you think of the big whale or fish. I wonder what you understand about the meaning of this little Old Testament book. I think this book is going to confront you as it has so many people throughout the centuries who have studied it and come to understand its meaning. I think Jonah will confront you. I think it will expose you. I think it will teach you and one of the main questions I think you will be forced to wrestle with when you get into this book is this. Is your heart aligned with God's heart? Is your heart like God's? In the things that God loves, are you, are you like Him? Are His loves your loves? Are the things that He cares about the same things you care about? Are the things that God cares about, God desires to bring about in your life and the lives of people around you, are those the things that you desire, that you long for? Are you like Him, not in the sense that you're omnipotent or omniscient, we can't share in those qualities of God, but are you like Him in the things that He loves? The things that God desires? The affections that God has? Are you like Him? A reflection of Him is in you, just like a father with his child? Jonah's going to bring this up. Because it's going to expose some of the nature of God that I wonder if we thought much about. And you're going to be forced to ask yourself, are you like that? Because we're going to see a man named Jonah who is not reflective of the character, of the loves, of the wants, of the desires of God. Jonah is going to confront you. And I hope for the best. This is an amazing book in the Bible. It's one of my favorites, personally. Uh, this is the reason why we've gone to it. After a New Testament letter, we did First Timothy. We spent a little time in a series on assurance. But now, I wanted to go back to an Old Testament book for the purpose of getting kind of both Testaments. And I love starting in Jonah. It's, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. It's a literary, theological masterpiece. I don't know what you think about Jonah. I don't know if you come from the school of thought that believes that it's too outlandish to be taken seriously, that this is more of a myth or a legend. We'll go in as we get further into this. This is a historical book. It's not intended to be read as a mere parable, although it does teach. It's not intended to be read as an allegory, although we do see ourselves in Jonah. This is a history. 
It actually points to real people in real places and gives specific events that happened. There's no reason in the text that it should be taken as anything other than historical narrative of a little swath of time in Israel's history with an interesting man with an interesting mission. And it tells us so much about God and so much about ourselves. It is a masterpiece and it's a theological bombshell. You can read it on one level, as probably most of us have in the past. Maybe in Sunday schools, growing up, you read Jonah and you go, Jonah and the whale, and you have this great lesson about how it's better to obey God than to disobey God. Well, that's one way to read Jonah, and that's a lesson that you could find there. It's not an illegitimate lesson. But I propose to you that if we are stopping there, we're missing the big picture and the main point of the book of Jonah. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to overview the whole thing right now, and I want you to do your best to follow along in your own copy of God's Word. And we're going to kind of stand back, we're going to look at the whole, and this morning we're going to look at four ways Jonah is going to confront us. And this is kind of how I like to introduce books. I like stepping back. I like getting the, the, the perspective of the whole. And then as we move through it in more detail, hopefully all of it will make a little bit more sense. But this morning, we're going to zoom out. We're going to go through the whole thing. And I'm going to propose that there are four ways this book is going to get in your face. It's going to confront you. It's going to expose things about you. And ultimately, it's going to be helping you understand more about your God and more about who you are and more about the mission God has us on for such a time as this. So would you turn with me to Jonah? If you're not already there. It starts, of course, with those fateful words in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It all starts with God speaking. The book ends with God speaking. It's couched in God revealing Himself. And let's see what happens in between. Jonah is commissioned by God to go. You guys know where he's going. He's going to Nineveh. It's described as a great city. Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. And if you're familiar with Old Testament biblical history, Assyria was a threat to the nation of Israel. In fact, it wouldn't be long, about a hundred years after Jonah takes place and the events of Jonah take place, that the nation of Assyria will actually come down from the north and take over the northern kingdom of Israel. So Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, is a recognized threat to the people of Israel. Jonah is called to go there. He's called to go there. The mission that God gives him is to warn them for the impending judgment. God says the evil of Nineveh has come up to God. He needs to go. and needs to call out against him. So Jonah gets up and he goes, not to Nineveh, but he goes to Tarshish. You know the story. He goes down to Joppa. He pays for a boat. He gets on the ship going to Tarshish. For those of you who are interested in some geography here, Tarshish is like the opposite direction. Here's Nineveh. Here's Tarshish. Nineveh would be upper north of uh, Israel, as I mentioned, in the nation of Assyria. You could think of modern-day Iraq, and Tarshish would be more modern-day Spain. So if you got some geography, he's going the opposite direction. Tarshish is about the very outer brink of the known world at that time. He is not only kind of slightly off from obeying what God has told him to do, he is high-handedly going the exact opposite direction to defy God. And what, is, what happens? How does God respond to this? Verse 4, God hurls a great wind. He creates a storm. Jonah's fleeing. God throws a storm at the ship. The pagan sailors who are on the ship are afraid. It's amazing if you think about that. These sailors would have been seasoned mariners. They would have been familiar with a storm here and there. But something about this storm is supernatural. Something about this storm is something like they've never seen before. And so they're all afraid to the point where they're all crying out to their false gods. They're all pagans. They don't worship Jonah's God. So they're crying out. Finally, they wake up Jonah. Hey, wake up. Start praying. Call upon your God. 
And so Jonah, he wakes up, he, he, they finally get to the bottom of it, they cast some lots, they figure out that Jonah is the problem. And Jonah admits, I'm running from God, I'm, I'm, I'm running from the God of heaven. The sailors are all terrified of him. Jonah, they basically say, hey, hey, what should we do about this, Jonah? Jonah has no desire to live at this point, so he goes, hey, throw me into the sea. I'm the problem. I've been fleeing. I, verse 12 of chapter 1, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. The sea will quiet down because it's my fault that this whole storm has come upon you. These pagans are more noble than Jonah is, but they don't want to do that. So they start trying to row to dry land. They, they can't. The sea is too much. And so finally, they cast Jonah into the sea. As he's sinking, the sailors have their first worship service on the boat. It results in their conversion. Verse 16, the men on the boat, that's the sailors, they fear the Lord. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They make vows. Jonah at this point is sinking. And of course, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He thinks he's falling to his death here. He thinks he's going to drown. But God is not done with him. God appoints a fish. The fish then swallows Jonah in the belly. This is chapter 2. Jonah finally is so low that he's willing to repent. He cries out. His prayer is recorded here. He repents. He comes back to recognizing that salvation is God's. It belongs to the Lord. This is verse 9. And that if God wants to save the Ninevites, He can save the Ninevites. And if God wants to save Jonah, He can save Jonah. So, and upon the repentance of Jonah, God then speaks to the fish. Verse 10 of chapter 2. The fish vomits Jonah up on dry land. God's not done with Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1, which kind of parallels chapters 1 and 2. The word comes back to Jonah. You're not done yet, buddy. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I sent to you this time. He's learned his lesson, one might think at least, and he gets up and goes to Nineveh. He goes to this giant city of Nineveh. He begins to walk through it. He begins to pronounce the judgment on it because they were such a wicked city. Nineveh was, by the way, not only the enemy of Israel, they were cruel, they were violent, they were similar to ancient terrorists. They would have been uh, one of the first military machines that used fear to try to drive their enemies away. They would do disgusting, despicable acts with their victims to try to startle the nations surrounding them and scare them into submission. Jonah walks right in to the city and he begins to cry out. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's a message of God's coming judgment. And verse 5 is a remarkable verse. I wish this would be unpacked more. It has so much punch. All we get though is these little words, and the people of Nineveh believed God. You get revival. You get a short little sermon from Jonah speaking nothing about God's forgiveness, only about God's judgment, but they all repent from the king on down to the lowest person there. They all repent. The, the king issues a fast, calls everyone to turn from his wicked way and to worship the one true God. Who knows? Verse 9, maybe God will relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. God does. Verse 10, God sees their repentance. God sees how sorry they are over their wickedness and God relents of the disaster. And all of Nineveh is saved. All of Nineveh is revived to salvation, brought into a right relationship with God. They're worshiping now the true and living God. How do you think Jonah's going to respond? All his enemies just got converted all the enemies, all the ones that he didn't like, all the ones that he saw as his enemies just got converted to worship the same God that he worshiped. So chapter 4, look at, look at his response. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was an Israelite's Israelite. Jonah loved being one of the people of God. And you could make a case that he has some deep-seated racial issues going on here. That he doesn't want anyone in Assyria, anyone in Nineveh, to be welcomed into the people of God. And so he is angry at the repentance of Nineveh. 
And we get a little bit into his heart. He, he goes to the Lord in prayer, verse 2. He prays to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <laughs> you get to the heart of Jonah. Why didn't he want to go to Tarshish? It's not because he was afraid of Nineveh. It's because he didn't want to see Nineveh saved. He didn't want to see Nineveh converted. He didn't want to see his enemies get any kind of mercy or grace. He wanted to see his enemies judged. And God gently asks him, verse 4, do you do well to be angry? He goes out of the city uh, and outside to watch what might happen. He's still hoping that maybe these guys will get judged anyway. Maybe God will just go back and he'll, they've all repented, but maybe God's just going to judge them in any way. Maybe there's going to be some fireworks from heaven, and I'm going to get a good light show here, and I'm going to sit outside the city. I'm going to sit and watch and wait for God to judge the city, to destroy the city, and that's not what happens. Instead, God creates a plant. What? A plant? Well, Jonah had been sitting out in the hot sun. God creates this plant. It gives him shade. Jonah loves the shade. Thankful for the shade. It saves him from his discomfort. Verse 6. But then, dawn comes up the next day. God appoints, verse 7, a worm. It attacks the plant. The worm kills the plant. The plant disappears. The sun rises. Verse 8. God appoints a scorching east wind. And suddenly, Jonah is wishing that he might die. This is not the first time he's wished that he might die. He's so angry. He's so miserable. He's so disappointed that God didn't judge. He is to the point where he's saying, I would rather die than live. Jonah is asked a question again by God. Do you do well to be angry? Verse 9. Yes, I do. Jonah says, angry enough to die. And the Lord asks him, you pity the plant. For which you did not labor, you did not make it grow, it came into being overnight, and it perished in a night. And then he asked a question. And should I not pity Nineveh? Jonah, you're so concerned about your own personal comfort, you get angry when your comfort's taken away, you get happy when you have comfort, and you have no concern for these lost, dying people you have no concern for them. You're very concerned about your own personal comforts. You have no concern about their souls. This is going to have so much implication for how we think about evangelism. We're going to ask ourselves the same question. This is the question God is leaving in our ears at the end of Jonah. Should I not pity wicked people? Should I not have compassion on them? What do you think? No, really, what do you think? Should, should God save such horrible, wicked, evil people? Should He show them mercy? Isn't there a measure of injustice if He does that? What do you want God to do with your enemies? The people who make your life hard. The people who upset your comfort. What do you want God to do with them? What do you want God to do with you? We're going to be confronted by this letter. And I'm going to give you four ways. Here's how Jonah will affect you. First, it will expose your view of God, and raise it. It will expose your view of God and raise it. You will be forced to wrestle with some serious theological questions about what God is like. I'm just going to point out some things that we've already seen in the text to just highlight. It will raise your view of God to study Jonah. First, you're going to see this. He's the king of individuals, isn't he? He's the king of individuals. He can do what people, or he, he can tell people what to do, can't he? He can show up into your life. He can disrupt your comfort. He can call you to obey his word. Isn't it true that God has the right to disrupt your life? 
Isn't that what God's Word does to Jonah? That Jonah's sitting there having a grand old time as a prophet in Israel. And we'll see historically some of the things he prophesied had come true. He was probably a beloved prophet. And here comes the Word of God disrupting everything. Does not God have the right to do that to you? And isn't His Word, when you read it, something of a disruption to our own agendas? God is King of individuals. God has the right to enter into your life with His disruptive Word and command you. He made you. He owns you. He has authority over you. And He can call on you to do His bidding. He's the King of individuals. We're also going to see He's the King of nations. He's the King of nations. God rules and cares about every nation on the planet. Think of the several cities that are mentioned in this little book. You got Jerusalem, where it's not explicitly mentioned, but where Jonah comes from, Israel. You got Tarshish, this place that Jonah flees to. You got Nineveh, that God cares deeply about and wants to send his prophet to. Isn't it true? that we sometimes think that God is not very concerned about the far and distant places in the world. For whatever reason, it might be our own self-absorption, we think that God really cares about our church and our city, and He really cares that we make a difference here. But those places that we've never been, God must not care about those. This is a fascinating reality. We might not care about certain places, but patently, God does. God cares about what's going on in Nineveh. God cares about what's going on in Jerusalem. God cares about what's going down in Tarshish. In fact, the whole book is, or the whole first half of the book, is Jonah trying to flee from the presence of God. And what does he learn? He can't do it. Why? Because God is watching every place. And while we begin to think that the evil in our world is so normal, and so institutionalized even, that certainly God has gotten used to it. I mean, we've gotten used to it. So many of the wicked things we experience in our lives, in our cities, in our communities, and around the world, we just kind of yawn and say that's just the way things are and we forget. God's not getting used to it. This isn't something that God goes, all right, well, they've been doing it so long, I guess it's just normal. What the Bible says is that when Jonah was happy in his own little town doing his thing, the the sins and the wickedness of the Ninevites was like a stench rising up to meet him. It was something he cared about. God is God of all nations. He rules the nations. He cares about the nations. And the sins of the nations rise up to a holy God. And he is not indifferent. He's not indifferent to these cities. He's not indifferent to any cities, not even today. He cares about Nineveh. He cares about Jerusalem. He cares about Tarshish. He cares about Los Angeles. He cares about what's happening in New York. He cares about what's happening in Hollywood. He cares about what's happening in Amsterdam. All of these cities of the world and all of these nations in the world, God is not indifferent to what's going on there. He's not letting these things slide. God is seeing all of it. And just like He says about Nineveh, their sin has come up before me. I think God could say that about any city in the world, including Rancho Cucamonga. The city's evil is rising up before me. The evil of the world, the evil of the nations, the evil of our cities, the evil in our households, even the evil within every individual rises up before a holy God. And God is not indifferent. I think He's proven that He's not indifferent. In Genesis, when He gave a flood, He cares about it all. Every last square inch. 
There's not a place on the planet that he is not concerned about. There's not a soul on the planet that he doesn't care deeply about. He is not indifferent to the world of men. He has perfect understanding of every human heart, every city, everything that's happening. And he has the right to execute judgment. We'll get back to that in a moment. He's not only the king of nations, the king of souls. He's not only the king of every individual. He's the king of nature. Did you see it in Jonah? Jonah runs away. God hurls a storm. The sailors cast lots. The lots land exactly how they're supposed to land on Jonah. Jonah's thrown into the sea. A fish appointed by God. The storm stops supernaturally, so it so frightens the sailors, they begin to worship him immediately. God speaks to a fish. You ever tried training a fish? Get that fish to lie down, roll over, sit, speak. God speaks to a fish. It spits him up, does what he says. He speaks to a worm, and the worm obeys. He gets a plant to grow in a miraculous way. He calls a wind to come, the wind blows. God is very much invested in His created world. He's the King of every individual. He's the Lord of all nations, and no one is indifferent. He is indifferent to no one. And He is ruling every last bit of nature that you could watch outside your window. Everything we see, every plant, every animal, every storm, every breeze is ordained by God. In Jonah, we encounter a God who is intimately involved in every aspect of the world. Friends, do you know who the main character of Jonah is? It's not Jonah. It's not the fish. The main character is God. From beginning to end, this is meant to put on display who God is. He is king of individuals. He is king of nations. He's king of nature. And let me ask you, how are you living in the king's world? It's not your world. It's his world. (laughs) Life is about him. All nature obeys him. All the nations ought to worship Him. And you ought to. How did you do this morning? Do you need to raise your view of this God who calls you to Himself in obedience, who directs all nature according to His sovereign will? Have you thanked Him this morning? Have you acknowledged Him this morning? Have you honored Him In your words this morning, have you expressed your depth of commitment to Him? Have you pursued His purposes this morning? Have you been marked by immediate obedience this week? Do you recognize His glory? Do you recognize that this is His world? Did you cast your anxieties on Him? Did you believe He's strong enough to take upon Himself, your burdens and your cares? Have you rested in Him today? Jonah exposes that often we have a low view of God and so we live as if there is no God. We can be professing that there is a God with our mouths and practical atheists while we live. This God really exists. He's really this way. And he really is concerned with you as an individual. And here's what the second thing that Jonah is going to do for us. This is the second thing that Jonah's book will expose in us. It will expose our view of sin and it will clarify it. Many of us have a low view of sin. Not many, all of us. All of us do not see sin with the same eyes, with the same gravity that God sees sin. This is a consequence of our own pride that we don't understand the depth and the gravity of sin. Isn't it true 
that you and I err on the side of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. If I were to ask you, or if I were to ask this room, how many of you are better than average drivers on the road? I guarantee more than half of you are saying, I am. I'm definitely in the top percentile of good drivers. And yet, that mathematically can't be true. If all of us are above average, I mean, we're a pretty much of an anomaly of a church here. We're not all above average. Some of us are below average. You know who you are. <laughs> and yet, isn't it true that we all want to be the first to say, no, no, I'm a little better. I'm just, I'm a little better than everyone else. We take that right down to the spiritual realities of our own hearts. We'll say, no, I, I compare myself with the other people here in this room. I'm just slightly better than most of them. I'm, just, I'm on the upside. I'm on the higher percentile. I'm, I'm good. We're, 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 we're all faced with this reality. We are actually worse than we think. That we tend to view sin, we tend to understand what sin is, not by looking at who God is, but by looking around at others in the room or at work or in your family. And we can feel pretty good about ourselves if we look at the right people. I compare favorably with them. I'm doing pretty good. And so we have a low view of sin. And Jonah will remind us how horrendous, how disgusting, how awful, how miserable sin is. Jonah's going to put that on display in his very own life. We're going to see in Jonah where his sin takes him. But I want you to notice a few things about this book. Number one, sin is pervasive. Name one righteous person in the book of Jonah. You don't find any. You got Jonah running away from the Word of God. You got sailors who are pagans who are worshiping false gods when the ship goes out to sail. You got Ninevites who are gross, violent, cruel, and wicked that God promises uh, judgment, but then later gives grace. You see, no one is good in this letter, in this book. There are not good guys and bad guys. It's not Jonah's the good guy and he's got to go talk to the bad guys. It's not that at all. You have redeemed and you have unredeemed. That's the only decisive difference, the category difference. Sin is everywhere. There's no good people. I think this is true in the world. We've got to recognize this. You read the Bible and you realize there's not good guys. There's there's guys that are by faith serving God with all they can, but they are all significantly flawed, aren't they? The only hero in the Bible is Jesus Christ. He's the hero. And in Jonah, we see there's no, there's no heroes here. We all are pointed to not Jonah's example, but God's. Another thing we see about sin is how deceptive it is. Jonah, in the first chapter, in the second chapter, is on the run from God, and we see how it blinds him. It absolutely brings him to a downward spiral of sin. I'm going to show you that in the coming weeks of how that happens. But also, we see in chapters 3 and 4 how his sin deceives him because he actually goes this time. He actually obeys the call of God, but he goes with external obedience only. He doesn't have a heart like God's, and so he doesn't want to do the things God calls him to do. He's self-deceived in both cases. It's not like the second half he's doing the right thing. He's doing it, but he has an empty heart. He's deceived. He thinks he can please God with heartless, empty obedience. We're going to see how destructive sin is. We're going to see how sin brings Jonah to a place not once, not twice, but three times where he's asking God to take his own life. Sin will lead you there. Undealt with, unrepented sin could lead you to a place you never thought you'd be where you're so low, you're so confused, you're so lost, you're so depressed, you're even thinking about what in the world am I doing still living now. Here's, a, here's what Jonah's doing. It's a loudspeaker to all the world saying, everybody is broken. Everybody is broken. Everybody is in need. Everybody is wicked. Everybody needs grace. I love our city. 
I love living here, having been here for a little under two years. I love that the mountains are beautiful, watching over us from the outside. I, I love being able to go up there. I like the parks that we have. My wife and I like heading over to Victoria Gardens every once in a while. She loves it much more than I do. <laughs> we love this place. But this city is broken. Deeply, deeply broken. You can't deny it. Just do a quick Google search, Rancho Cucamonga. Search for news articles. And you'll see things in the last couple of weeks I wouldn't dare mention from up here. Sick things, disgusting things happening in our very own community. This is the world. There are no good cities. There are no good people. We are all broken sinners before a holy God who is not indifferent to us. Google can track all the visible sins, all the divorce rates that skyrocket, the use of drugs, bullying in schools, theft, vandalism, but it can't track the sins of the human heart the pride that exists in the people here, the apparent apathy for the common good, the utter disregard for God's holy word. And listen, the stench of our sin rises up to a holy God who is not indifferent. I think God looked at Nineveh and He said, this is an exceedingly wicked city. And I think He looks at the cities of the world, including Rancho Cucamonga, and he says, this is an exceedingly wicked city. Oh, if we evaluate ourselves by other cities, we might think of good things that we like more than other cities. But when we evaluate our, thing, our city by God's standards, we are exceedingly wicked. We don't measure up to God's calling on humanity as a community. What should God do with people like us? Places like this, and places around the world where evil rises like a stench to God. And this is the third thing Jonah's going to do. It's going to expose God's grace, and it will surprise you. It'll surprise you when you see what God does with the wickedness in his world. First of all, think of what happens with Jonah. Jonah runs away. He runs the exact opposite direction of the direction that God called him to go. And what does God do? He sends a storm. You say, what's gracious about that? You know what would have been uh, worse than sending a storm? Sending no storm. Because he would have traveled away from God's direction in his life. He would have gone on in his merry way. And nothing would have brought him to the sea. And nothing would have brought him to the belly of that fish. And nothing would have brought him to repentance. But God was gracious in a storm. You see this amazing, unpredictable grace to the disobedient prophet. This is how God is dealing with him. He's not going to discard him. He's going to direct him. He's going to harness all of creation to bring Jonah to the place he wants him to be. It's sometimes called the passive wrath of God when God allows people to go on in their sin without disrupting them in any way. I think that's a scary place to be. When you're going on in your sin and you are not being exposed and you're allowed to continue on and you've got these secret sins that you're hiding and no one knows and there are one way God could deal with it with some sort of act of wrath where He deals with it decisively and immediately. But some people, they go on. God allows them to go on in their sin. No alarm sounds. No warning signal. The passive wrath of God allows them to walk down the road, the comfortable road to destruction. There's so much grace in the storm. And if you've been through storms, this is one of the things you're going to see in Jonah, that the storm is a way of God's severe mercy for you. 
Because if it weren't for the storm, he wouldn't have gone into the sea. If he wouldn't have gone into the sea, he would never got to the fish. If he never made it to the fish, he would have never repented. Jonah would never have repented. So God works with Jonah in these surprising ways. We're going to see that God's ways of grace are unpredictable and surprising. You say, okay, well, what does God do with a wicked city? We see what he does with a prophet who's disobedient. What does he do with a wicked city? What does he do with Nineveh? He sends a prophet. I mean, again, he could have let them go. He could have let them continue on in their own way. But for this generation in Nineveh, God decides to send a prophet. We are reminded of the texts of Scripture that say that God desires all men to be saved. That God is not willing that any should perish. And so, instead of losing this generation of Assyrians who are anti-God, He sends a warning. He sends Jonah to give a message. God delights to save sinners. And often, He will use people to go bring the message of salvation to them. But we'll be also reminded in Jonah that sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes God doesn't send the messenger. Sure, creation cries out the message that God exists. Creation calls all people to worship God. But not always do people get the message of the gospel. And God as creator, as king, has the right to say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He is not obligated, we realize reading Jonah, he is not obligated to give mercy to anyone. He would be just and right and good if He were to condemn the whole world and consign them to judgment because that's what they have deserved. But often, what we read in Scripture, God does send a messenger. He does send a message of warning or of grace, of judgment, of forgiveness. God would have been right to condemn Jonah, but He sends a messenger. He sends Jonah and moves heaven and earth to get Jonah to bring the message to the people and Nineveh is saved. This is, a, is amazing, surprising. It shows us a God that we can't capture, bring into our lab, get under a microscope and study to the point that we completely understand all His mystery. We can't. Why does God do this? Why Nineveh? Why at this point? Why are they saved? There's no clear answer other than God is merciful. God is gracious. God does extend salvation and forgiveness to those whom He wills. We need to come to grips with the reality here that a holy God rules the universe. He's not indifferent to the sins of the nations. He's not indifferent to the individuals that comprise those nations. All sin is like a stench rising up to a holy God. We are sinners. And we live in this sinful, broken world and God would be right and just to condemn. But He sends messengers to give the message of grace. That's why churches exist, isn't it? That's why you, what you've been called to do as a Christian, isn't it? To be an ambassador for the God who made you and be the messenger of His grace to the world. If you're not a Christian and you came into this room on this Sunday morning and all of this is so confusing, you thought Jonah was about a whale. And you happened to come in here. And you're realizing this is about a God. Well, I want to invite you to understand the core message of this book is that God has compassion to those who least deserve it. And He sends forgiveness and grace, the message of hope in Jesus Christ to you this very moment. And whatever storm brought you up into this very room right now, God is inviting you to trust His Son. In Jonah, we don't meet Him. But years later, after the book of Jonah is composed, we will meet Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And He is the messenger from God who is not disobedient like Jonah, but it's perfectly obedient. 
And he obeys the will of the Father to go to the cross and die in the place of sinners, to rise again, conquering sin, and then to extend himself to all who would trust him. And now the message is judgment can be meted out on Christ and not you. And you can escape judgment by faith in Jesus Christ. The God who made you, the God who is your king, the God who rules the nations, the God who rules all nature, has so ordained your history so as to bring you here this morning and to invite you to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And just like God saved the very wickedest of the people of Nineveh from the king on down, God can save you. You turn and trust Him. You repent and believe. You'll be saved. If you're running away, what Jonah will teach you is that it won't do you well to keep running. There might be a storm in your path or a fish. And what God wants to do is bring His people home and He can harness heaven and earth to do so. And if you continually ignore the warnings of the Gospel, there might not be a storm in this life. God might let you go in His passive wrath. But there will be a storm in the next life as you face judgment without a Savior. The last thing that Jonah does for us, and this is for all of us, is that it increases our appetite for purpose. A life running from God is no life at all. A life trying to ignore God's call on your life is miserable. When you lose the purpose God has given you, your soul begins to shrink because you're holding on to the trinkets and trivialities of this world and suddenly you'll find your soul is only as big as those things are. And your capacity for great love and the sense of great purpose will be so small that you couldn't conceive of the joy of serving an omnipotent God. You were not made to see a lost and dying world. You were not made to see a Nineveh out there that will be judged and respond like Jonah. You're not made to live as if those things don't matter. You're not made to go, who cares if the wicked perish? You're not made to do that. And if you live that way, you will fall into this spiral of dull, numbing, Sin where you can't fathom what it would even feel like to live for God. You see this in Jonah. He's running from God. As that's what we see in the beginning. By the end, he's asking to die. There's a connection between those two things. See, he has so lost his idea of living for God's purpose that, and he's so self-absorbed that he evaluates the quality of his life based on his own comforts. What about you? If you forget your God-given purpose in life, you sentence yourself to confusion, to misery, perhaps despair. To forsake God's call on your life to obey God and serve others will lead to distress. Anguish? Despondency? How often do you think about the needs of people around you? How often do you ignore the needs of people around you? Have you forgotten God's call on your life? Those of us in the church here as members, we've made commitment to one another. When you forget that purpose, when you forget that you have obligations to glorify God and to serve Him as you serve your fellow church members, 
When you forget that, church becomes drudgery. Life becomes drudgery when you forget your purpose. Are you orienting your life around God's agenda? Because that's when you get a sense of purpose and conviction and joy. How do you evaluate? How do you evaluate whether you had a good day or a bad day at the end of the day? Is your evaluation based merely on how you feel at the end of the day? I was comfortable today. Good things happened to me today. It was a good day. I was uncomfortable today. Bad things happened to me today. It therefore was a bad day. Is your soul understanding and evaluation of your life simply based on whether you feel good, whether good things happen to you, or are you living for something greater than yourself? Because the people of God don't evaluate the goodness or the badness of their days or of their weeks or of their lives simply on what happens to them, but on how God is glorified. That's how we evaluate the goodness or the badness of a life. And if you're going through all of your life thinking, My life is good. Good things are happening. Life is comfortable. You are going to be shriveling up in your soul. But if you live your life saying, I live for God. I live for Him. The goodness of my life is not based on the comforts I achieve, but on the glory I bring to my God. Well, then you could face walking into Nineveh, the people who are your enemy. You could travel the seas and go to those places where they want no Christians and you could lay your life down because you're not evaluating the goodness of your life based on the comforts you have. You're evaluating the goodness of your life based on bringing glory to God. That's what fires you up. So get you moving in the morning. This is how we ought to live. Jonah reminds us that running away from God is no life at all. Because you were made to live for something bigger than that. You were made to be a part of this great, grand, redemptive purpose that God has started at the very beginning, that He will complete at the very end, that we now are smack right in the middle of it. And we're here as the church of God to bring the gospel to every nation. And we're called to lay our lives down if necessary in the process. We're made to live for glorious and great things. And when we don't, we find ourselves pouting like Jonah, complaining about our comforts, and perhaps even despairing to the point where we wonder if we should even live. Are you living for God? It won't do well to live any other way. It won't do well to do any other thing with your life other than to lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, you loved me, you died for me, you rose for me, you live for me now, you pray for me, you're with me, you're my father, you're my friend, you're my Lord and Savior, I trust you, I can walk with you, and I will go wherever you call me to go. It is no life at all to say to God, no, I'm going to do things my way. You don't want to go down that path. So what will Jonah do for us? I pray it raises our view of God. I pray it lowers our view of man, that we see the sinfulness of sin. I pray it exposes us to the surprising and unpredictable grace of God. And then it lights a fire under us to live for God's purposes in the world. Let's pray.